Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, I will tell you guys about how bulldogs lost their jobs. Of course, I'm going to talk about more than just bulldogs. What I want to talk about today is the decline in popular culture in 18th century Britain. Now, a good way to look at this is through the story of the bulldog. Bulldogs are kind of in fashion right now, I guess. If you go to the dog park, which I do sometimes, even though I don't own a dog, um, you'll see a lot of bulldogs. And you've probably asked yourself the question, why are they called bulldogs? Well, it's not because they were bred to look like bulls or that they worked with bulls. They were bred to be used in this kind of sport called bull baiting, which was all the rage in the 18th century. In 18th century towns and cities and, you know, rural communities, uh, before you slaughtered a bull for meat, you would often have to bait it uh, because getting the bull to fear for its life was meant to make the meat taste better. You could get a fine if you didn't bait your bull before selling it to market. So butchers would have to bait their bulls. It was also, uh, it seems, kind of fun. So what was bull baiting? Well, what you did is you, you know, tied a bull to the center of a ring, and then a bunch of people with dogs would get their dogs to attack the bull. And the dogs that had, you know, the most bravery and the most tenaciousness and, you know, the biggest fighting spirit or who, you know, actually killed the bull would be given a prize. The weird thing about bull baiting isn't just that it, to us, seems really horrifying. All those cute bulldogs being used and bred so that they would, you know, bravely attack bulls. The weird thing is that it declined. Payments for the upkeep of bull rings uh, declined in the 18th century, and in 1832, Parliament made the weird step of passing a law banning bull baiting from all of Britain. Now, I want to explain this change, and explain it as a part of a wider thing called popular culture. To do that, I'm going to have to do three things. First, I'm going to talk about what historians mean when we talk about pop culture. And then I'm going to talk about different reasons that people uh, think that pop culture declined. Then I'm going to offer my own opinion. So, popular culture. What is it? I, I remember before I went to graduate school uh, and I would hear academics wring their hands over these concepts like popular culture and modernity and democracy, and I would just sigh to myself and go, ah, academics, come on, we know what those words mean. You don't need to write like a 30-page essay about different conceptions of pop culture. It just isn't doing anybody favors. Now that I'm in graduate school and doing this academic work, I realize that this is actually really important. And it's really important because these familiar concepts like popular culture, modernity, democracy, fascism, are really so familiar that we don't know what they mean. And part of the problem that we get into when we're arguing about these things is that we can be arguing across purposes if we don't get our definitions right. So let's take the case of popular culture. Of course you know what I mean when I say pop culture. A bunch of things spring to your head. Uh, especially the idea of pop culture, the 20th and 21st century variety of popular culture. 
Um, today, in the age of mass communication and the internet, when I say pop culture, you imagine this set of frivolous, light cultural material that appeals to the lowest common denominator. Um, my friends know that I am a uh, reluctant but kind of sometimes avid consumer of pop culture. Uh, I read the gossip websites, but I don't watch reality TV. I listen to Taylor Swift and Carly Rae Jepsen, but not Katy Perry. Um, I'll watch The Great British Bake Off and Terrace House, but not The Bachelor. But popular culture means a different thing for historians. Uh, it means a quite specific set of activities. Now, popular culture used to, in the 70s and 80s, when the terms started to be used in, in, in historical study, it meant the culture of the people, the traditional culture of the people. And so to do that, you need to first understand who the people are. And in the 70s and 80s, this wasn't that difficult. The people were the laboring classes, the people who worked, the real people, the salt of the earth people. And the idea was that these, you know, rural laborers and, you know, handloom weavers and all those, you know, uh, uh, stereotypically proto-revolutionary uh, uh, workers had a set of customs that were traditional, that came to them uh, through this kind of time immemorial, uh, fun, you know, merry old England. A lot of uh, antiquarians and a lot of uh, uh, less academic folks often say that these uh, customs were pre-Christian, that they're the sort of things that people did back before the Romans came. And so popular culture was the study of these kind of picturesque urban amusements. And because they're so fun, uh, I thought that it might be useful just to talk about a couple of them. Um, one of the most funny to me is the sport of throwing at cocks, uh, because, I mean, the name is just hilarious. Uh, but throwing at cocks, it was done at fairs and wakes and stuff. And what you would do is you would tie a uh, cock, a, a, a male chicken, to the ground, and you'd get people to stand a, a certain amount of uh, distance away from them, and they would pay a penny, and they'd get a little stick, and they'd have to throw the stick at the chicken. And if they knocked the chicken down, then they could run at the chicken. And if they caught it while it was still knocked down, they would get the chicken. This seemed to be a lot of fun for people in the 18th century. I can imagine it kind of like those games that you play at fairs today where you, you know, have to shoot the targets or throw the hoop. And it was probably really hard to do. Like, it was probably a lot harder than you think to throw a stick at a chicken and make it fall down. But this was hilarious and really entertaining for the people of the 17th and 18th centuries. Another one that you're probably familiar with is uh, maypole dancing, uh, which happened during spring rites uh, on the 1st of May. Um, young ladies and young men would uh, put a maypole up and dance around it and get drunk. Uh, another uh, a similar one is Morris dancing, um, where a bunch of older men now, if you see Morris dancers, get dressed in funny, funny outfits and dance the least sexually attractive dance you've ever seen in your entire life. Another really key popular tradition are the 12 days of Christmas. Um, I always get really jealous about this because they seem like a lot of fun, but in the 12 days around Christmas, instead of getting together and giving presents, uh, people would just get drunk and eat a lot of beef. And there's a ton of popular sports uh, that often varied quite a bit between local community and local community. The most important one for Britain, and probably for the international history of sport, is football. 
Today we have a bunch of different kinds of football. We have American football, uh, we have uh, soccer or association football, we have rugby union and rugby league. Yet in the 17th and 18th centuries in Britain, football was a far more local concern. People would have local rules, and if there was a competitive game between two localities before they would start playing, they would have to agree what the rules were, how big the pitch was, how many people were on each team, what determined the goals. But far more common than these kinds of organized matches were just people getting together and kicking a ball in the street. Um, you can imagine these uh, uh, 17th and 18th and 19th century towns being filled with kids and adults just kicking balls around for fun. It changes the way that we think of the past when we think of the streets being filled with children and men playing. But it was true. Uh, but there was also a different kind of football, a kind of ritual football that would happen in a very few number of places about once or twice a year. And I'm going to read you an extended quote from Robert Malcolmson's Popular Recreations in English Society, 1700 to 1850, that uh, bestseller, uh, to tell you a little bit about how wild this kind of football was. And this is the Derby game that took place in Shrovetide between the parishes of St. Peter's and All Saints. Um, so the objective of each team, there were 500 to 1,000 aside in the early 19th century, was to carry the ball to a goal about a mile outside the town. St. Peter's, the gate of a nursery ground towards London and All Saints, the wheel of the watermill to the west. In most matches, the St. Peter's side tried to get the ball into the River Derwent and swim with it, a circuitous approach to their own goal, but a tactical removal of the ball in the opposite direction from the All Saints watermill. If the St. Peter's men could overpower their rivals in the water, the ball was landed at a point near the goal and carried home. If the defense was too strong, it would be hidden until dark, sometimes to be relieved of its cork shavings and the covering smuggled in under someone's smock or petticoat. Occasionally, when one side had uncommon muscle, the offense was straight over land, but this strategy obliged the Peters team to cross the brook which led to their opponent's goal, an approach which could easily backfire. New ploys for attack or defense were warmly received. On one occasion, for instance, an enterprising fellow was reputed to have escaped with the ball into a sewer and passed under the town, only to be surprised as he surfaced by a party of opponents. Towards the finish of the match, when the drift of the context was clear, the climax centered on the stratagems around one goal, such as starting up the All Saints water wheel. The player who ended the game was cheered through the winner's home territory and given the honor of throwing up the ball at the start of the next year's play. That sounds wild. That's crazy. I would totally pay to see that. I would totally pay to participate in that, although I probably would end up with a bloody nose. Um, now, of course, there's a bunch of other different kinds of popular pastimes. Uh, there's fairs and wakes and feasts. Oftentimes, uh, the fairs were uh, around some kind of commercial activities. So there were fairs hiring servants. Uh, there were fairs for commercial endeavors. Uh, there were also fairs for selling agricultural goods like pig fairs. But most of these had a kind of pleasurable side to them as well. Uh, they would have theater shows and dances and, you know, little things that we imagine fairs to have. Increasingly over the 18th century, there were more and more fairs just for pleasure. And if you were a young apprentice or a young rural person, the fair was a great time for you to go and get uh, with members of the opposite gender or members of the same gender, if that was how you, how you went. 
um, it was a time for people to have sexual play. Uh, people would get drunk and make out in the bushes at the night of these fairs. And it was also a time for people to meet marriage prospects. The reason for this is kind of obvious. These fairs drew in people from much wider localities than you would usually meet if you were just, you know, in your village all the time. And they also provided this essential thing for servants. They provided things that let them look cool. They provided things that let them have status. If you won, say, a, you know, a throwing a cox match at a local fair, you looked cool in a way that you wouldn't look cool in your daily life when you were just a servant. And there's tons of local pastimes. And one of the big takeaways from the research in this is that there were a lot of local variation between uh, what people did. This wasn't, as the people in the 70s and 80s thought, just the story of the working classes having the same kind of traditional popular culture coming from, you know, uh, pre-Roman Britain. No, each different locality, because of the differences in politics and economics, would have different kinds of pastime, happening at different times of the year, being involved with different members of the community. But the weird thing is, is that by 1850, most of these pastimes were gone, and they were replaced by national, commercial, and urban pastimes. So football is a great example of this. Those big matches of the 18th and early 19th century were replaced increasingly by organized professional matches running on rules that had been developed in British public schools to keep boys, you know, regulated. And this is why there's so many different kinds of football, American football, association football, rugby football, because each one is the set of rules that was established in a particular football playing area that then just got, you know, spun out as it became national and then international. Bull baiting was outlawed in 1832. Christmas, you know, much to our distress, went from being 12 days of public feasting to a single day of domestic present giving. And this has puzzled a lot of historians. And there's a bunch of different explanations for why it happened. One explanation is modernization. That as society progresses, people get more rational people have greater interest in establishing bodily and emotional self-control. Think about our discussions of politeness. Think about the changes of polite custom from like 16th century to 18th century. People went from farting at the dinner table to eating with forks and dabbing their, you know, the corners of their lips with handkerchiefs. And this was part of the reform of recreations. Uh, there were a bunch of societies that would develop, like the Society for Propagating Christian Knowledge, whose duty it was, was to make people more moral. And they did that through reforming recreations. They said, look, on Sunday, you have to go to church and be respectable. You can't go to church and then go to an alehouse and get drunk and play bowling. And similarly, there was a sense that this new modern person had a different kind of pleasure, that they didn't want the bodily animalistic pleasure that you got when you cheered your beloved bulldog, you know, going at the throat of a, of a poor bull. No, they wanted rational recreations like hanging out in coffee houses and talking, or reading poetry, or drinking tea, or going on walks in a promenade. 
However, there is a problem with this story, in that it seems to not be able to explain the timing of these changes. Why should modernization happen at this particular time? Why should certain sports like throwing a cox decline before other sports like fox hunting? And similarly, it can't explain the rise of really brutal pastimes uh, at the same time as other blood sports are declining. Um, pugilism, boxing, became really, really big in the 19th century. It was really big in all classes, not just poor people, but rich people. If you're a fan of boxing, you'll know that the rules of modern boxing are called Queensbury rules, and they're named after Marquess of Queensbury, an aristocratic patron of boxing who gave his name to a set of rules in 1867. So if people are meant to be getting more humane, then why are they, you know, spending time hitting each other in the face until people fall down? Another explanation is capitalism. And this explanation has a little bit more give. It has a little bit more mechanism to it. The idea is, is that culture rests on the material base. The important thing for Marxist is social relations of production, how things are made and consumed. And when capitalism happens, the material base changes. And this means that culture also has to change. So I'll say that in less abstract terms. Old pastimes were based on seasonal rhythms of tightly knit rural communities. The timing of wakes and fairs in local communities was based around when, in the agricultural season, people had time off. Lots of wakes happened uh, at the end of spring and in the early summer because that was a slack time of agricultural labor in between planting and harvesting, for instance. So when people stop having these close-knit rural communities because people are going to the cities for work or land is being enclosed or you have uh, uh, elites who are trying to instill work discipline in their laborers so that they can get more profit, then you have a change in culture. Well, actually, more specifically, the culture dies. These old customs around these old rural social lives are destroyed, and you're left with nothing. You're left with a cultural wasteland. But this is a problem because culture serves a functional purpose. Culture serves to knit society together. Without the aid of these maypole dances and these 12 days of Christmas and these football matches, the idea goes, people would just be pissed off and they wouldn't work. So capitalism faces a problem. It needs to create a new culture for this new kind of national urban social life. And it does so by inventing these kinds of commercial recreations that take off in the 19th century. Instead of people getting together and singing during a particular set times of year, like one might do in the Merry England of, of yore, people instead would go to music halls and pay money to watch professional singers. Instead of going out and playing in the local football match, you would watch a football match put on by a for-profit organized community. But this is in some ways unconvincing. One is if you notice uh, the big movers of these stories are gigantic concepts like capitalism. Capitalism wants to do stuff and so this stuff happens. It's missing the direct mechanism of how this new culture arises out of the old culture. And also it fails to explain why certain customs survive and other customs die. Christmas might have gone from 12 days to one day 
but it's popular throughout all of British history. It never dies. And it's now probably the tentpole of global ritual life. If you go to any place in the world on December 25th, you will find people celebrating Christmas. Of course, you can spin a story about how Christmas is co-opted by commercial capitalism, but it doesn't explain why Christmas. I think that the change in popular culture has to do with the rise of urbanization, particularly the rise of new urban social orders. And first, I want to explain a corrective. I think that a big problem with all of this study of popular culture is it assumes that culture didn't change before, like, 1750. But that's wrong. Cultures are always rising and falling. Traditions are always coming and then leaving us. Um, and customs seem really, really old really quickly. It just takes a generation of people doing stuff for us to think that they last forever. Valentine's Day probably seems to us to be like this holiday that's always been with us. But no, it started about a hundred odd years ago, uh, and it was driven by new forms of, of uh, communication through the post office. Similarly, in Britain, there's a bunch of customs that uh, people often assume are very, very old that come from this old Merry England of pre-modern, uh, pre-Roman Britain. But actually, we can identify their developments in relatively recent past. Great example of this is the wassail bowl. One of the great things of the 12 days of Christmas is the wassail bowl, this gigantic silver decorated bowl filled with liquor that's passed from person to person that you basically have to drink the whole thing up in one go. Uh, if anybody uh, in their college drinking games did a waterfall, this is uh, where it comes from. And people often say, look, the wassail bowl is one of these ancient customs. But people have identified it actually as arising in the 1550s. Interestingly, by the 1580s, people are calling it ancient. So customs are always rising and falling. We don't need to explain why bear baiting declined. What we do need to explain is why new things rose up in its place. So I think that one of the big stories is the rise of urban amusements to go along with the new urban culture. And these urban amusements were far more well-ordered, far, far less violent, less far less noisy, far more polite than the amusements of traditional rural England. Bull baiting is a great example. Bull baiting was a problem not because it was vicious, but because it was done in the center of the town and it was noisy. And let's say that you were a, a, a gentry member of Bristol and you just spent a lot of money in lighting the streets and of paving them and of making the central square real nice. And then you get a bunch of people bringing bulls and dogs into it to fight while the pavement will get bloody and shat upon. That's not a good look. It's also really noisy and disruptive. That's also not a good look. People did not try initially to just destroy bull baiting, they tried to move it out of city centers so it wouldn't be disruptive. That's the change that we're seeing. We're seeing the change in urban amusements from things that would get in people's way to things that were polite and contained. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, send me an email. An important thing you can do is if you liked 
an episode in particular, tell me because I can pump it up on social media. Uh, I don't know which ones are good and which ones are bad because I don't listen to them. I just make them. Um, thanks very much for listening. I'm going to take about a week off now because it's spring break and I need a rest. Uh, I might be back for a couple bonus episodes. We'll see if that works. Thanks very much for listening.